ears wide open. A new series of podcasts provided by Anima Eterna Brügge. Reenacting Schumann Part 3, The Performer's Perspective. Musicians of Anima Eterna Brugge were involved in an innovative, experimental, and risky project, reenacting the authentic romantic style as it was played at the time of Clara Schumann. With early recordings of Clara Schumann's pupils and friends as sources, Vidori Zeiler and Kai Kup, co artistic directors of the project, were able to reveal its main characteristics like rhythm, tempo and intonation flexibility, and large use of portamento. All elements that are absolutely not what today's musicians are taught to or supposed to do. In this last episode, along with the clarinetist Lisa Schlever and the cellist Hilary Metzger, we will take the performer's point of view. Let's give a start the unusual and days-long personal preparation to this project. Well, the, the problem for us musicians is that when we first see a piece of music, when we, first, when we see a piece of music the first time, we usually pick up an instrument and play it. And that is really limiting, because um, once we take up an instrument, we, get, we become animals who think and play through an instrument and not have themselves inspired by the score. So what, what is actually so important, and I advise that my students, for anything they do, to not use the instrument, to not become this violin-playing animal, because as soon as we have a violin in hand, we think about, oh... How, what do I do as a fingering? Oh no, this bowing. Oh, oh, this is a difficult place. And oh, I have to practice. And then you start practicing. You get into a technical mode, and this is very destructive to get into a character because, yeah, it prioritizes the, the technical difficulties, which are of course there. So, um, for me, it's very important to to look first, to see and to just um, consume the, the score without instrument. And, and usually, if I practice something, if I want to learn something, I forbid myself to listen to recordings, which in this case, of course, with um, so, such important recordings, we have 
as an artifact, as an evidence to historical performing is, is different. And for the preparation, uh, for me personally, was very important to get in touch with this old recording, so to say, from the recording of that time, um, and to know as good as possible the material, not only my clarinet part, of course, but also of the uh, second clarinet, of the entire group of woodwinds, uh, the party tour. Um, so it's really... Um, a long process of listening and getting into the music, into the material, listening different recordings, um, because this experience, this this amount of, of audio experience gives you imagination what it could be like. And there, then, then my feeling was like, now I'm prepared enough um, to play it without conductor. So um, I'm kind of independent. I know what the music, where the music goes to, um, what are the crucial, crucial moments. So I feel myself free in this um, material and then I can act and react and uh, depends on acoustic, depends on, I don't know, on weather <laughs> or on, on mood of concertmeister. So I'm um, yeah, improvising, of course, but still. Um, the better you prefer, pre prepare, the better you feel while playing, rehearsing, um, yeah, and playing in concert. Many performers usually listen to recordings during their preparation as a source of inspiration and understanding. But this time, they had to use a specific recording as blueprint and were supposed to first imitate it as closely as possible. What was Lisa's feeling about this? Did she felt less free as a musician? It's an interesting question. Uh, so f to me, it's still in, in process. I, I can't answer definitely to you right now because uh, I, I, I really love, I adore these old recordings and I know I can imitate quite well. <laughs> so... Um, and I do it sometimes. I just copy what I what I've listened to, but it's not the natural way of of, of playing, so to say. All this recording of a uh, hundred years ago, um, it's a great thing. What I can or be orientated on, but it's not me playing, and it's not the time of today. So. Um, I kind of, um, for, for the beginning, I copied them. I copied this uh, way and style of playing. From the beginning, it was really um, not my way of playing, but, but uh, listening more and more, uh, getting deeper and deeper in this style, I started to enjoy it so much. Um, and um, the question is, where is my own uh, way of of reproducing this music and not copying this so it, it's still it, it's moving some it, it's still moving in in my mind and um, yeah sometimes I feel oh okay it, it was something new but but I like it so while playing it comes like 
something new and uh, so it's it's still a process of course you are not so free playing in the orchestra <laughs> um but but still um all these old recordings it's a real basement for imagination what we are trying to reproduce what we are trying to um to imagine to recreate with our sound with our inter interpretation a lot of challenges were part of this project not only the flexibility involved by the playing style but also an uncommon setting of the orchestra on stage and most of all the experiment of playing without a conductor what seemed to be the most challenging to Ilari Metzger the tempo flexibility by far um people want to play together and they're used to very little uh, change in an overall tempo in fact uh, that's and and it's and and that is related to not having a conductor um it, it, that's going to be very unsettling i have to say so i specialize in 19th century performance practice i play in other groups that do this um i study it i that's part of my life um so I can't say this is completely new to me these ideas um but they're hard and they're 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 always difficult for me it's a challenge it's adventure um and it pushes me in a positive way to be prepared even more even better and it's not the same as playing chamber music um because we are just too many in the orchestra and then at that moment you really have to be aware and to play in this um uh, to play to be to be able to listen to and to hear everybody in the orchestra what we normally don't do if conductor stays <laughs> in front of the orchestra so it's not needed so to say and here without conductor everybody is responsible for his self for herself and also for the group also for the for the entire orchestra so to say maybe i'm exaggerating but i feel like this so it's this re responsibility i like and um, the experience shows that it is possible without conductor yes it's not easy it's difficult it's it's demanding at some point but uh, it works i i like it when i was studying i was told to use the metronome as often as possible so um no matter which part of the movement i was just playing if it was very active or or more calm i i was supposed to always use the same tempo and to keep it so for many of us in a project like that where we play without a conductor who who gives a visual sign of where the beat should be um uh, automatic remedy would be to to just keep a clicking metronome inside so we would play together and to to um lose this to leave it not use that in a metronome is quite a challenge because you always fear that you will fall apart as an orchestra but um that's the big challenge we have and to to just trust that music is so speaking for itself 
that we can follow a line and all relax together or go forward together. Yeah, that um, I felt that today in the rehearsal that um, people have this responsibility of not losing the tempo, being steady and, and not give in to tendencies of itenuto. But I think this will come really early and uh, really soon and we will, we will enjoy it for sure. Talking about me personally, um, I'm looking very much to the conductor and very less in the score because, uh, I mean, we play Beethoven, Mozart or yeah, classical romantic music and the material is quite clear. Since 100, 115, 200 years, there is nothing new in the score. So I know the music quite, I learned it quite fast by heart, so to say, not entirely, of course. But uh, yes, I am concentrating on, on what conductor is doing and what other groups or uh, instrumentalists are doing, playing in every particular moment. So for me, it was not really a huge difference playing without conductor because I'm uh, because playing with conductor, I'm also very aware what is happening, what, what is going on in the, in the orchestra. So I play with my ears, but also very much with my eyes, <laughs> which is maybe not that typical, um, but I barely look at the score <laughs> especially of course not in the first second rehearsing rehearsal but um, when if, if the project is long enough i feel really free um, to to pay much more attention visually what's happening what's going on in the orchestra well and uh, of course for me, it's really helpful to be prepared good enough before the first rehearsal, before the project starts. They probably were watching less and listening more. Although um, it feels uncomfortable because this is where we get our cues. Um, I would like you to, in this context right now, where we have time to experiment, to try to change your autopilot from getting visual cues to audible cues and audible information that's more an anticipation of mood than of moments. And this is why, uh, of course, this uh, short information comes from the bass group and uh, uh, this uh, unified sound needs the violins connected and then the violas, uh, I think you, you're comfortable. If that's connected, you know where to go. Um, the other thing is, when you listen closely to uh, the recording, um, they're not together all the time. And they did not care about vertical, uh, vertical precision as much as we do. So this, is, this may be a result uh, of not watching each other closely. But it's also a result of having lines. Yes? I have another question about, about uh, organizing the Fortimenti. Uh, because, uh, as I understood, the leader kind of initiates the portamenti. I mean, uh, does the group do the same portamenti or not? Otherwise, if, if the leader uh, gives the, 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 the sign of portamenti, then we should be able, be able to see each other also. 
That's or I mean, uh, the portamento is a very audible thing. So uh, you listen uh, to what your, your neighbor does, and if it's repeated, you try to imitate that as well. So let's try to, to get the information of po uh, about portamento from, from your ear. And this is why I don't want to, to, to indicate the numbers. Also, for instance, here where I, I now um, try to indicate, the normal modern way would be a bit later. But as we hear in the recording, the portamentia are actually starting quite early. So that's also a point where the group could maybe hear. So the, the note kind of softens and, and, and moves. We were talking about the eighth note rhythmically. Is the dotted quarter eighth note figure something that could change to be more triplety as we get to A flat major, or is it exactly not? So the uh, four bars before the tempo change, uh, the, the, bar, uh, the um, harmony change, you have uh, ritardando, um, and the retard is um, something about mood and articulation, of course. So um, one strategy of retarding together is not having someone beating the retard, is, uh, but feeling together how the mood softens, and the eighth notes are key for that. Can you be more, uh, so the eighth notes could become more like a triplet division toward the end? You don't want to... Uh, uh, this information refers to written notation. I want, to, want you to get away from okay. that. Okay. And it's also the minuet, so it's like... Yes, so whatever feels relaxing okay. with respect to four, a four-bar section that's then a slow, different mood will work. And I'm sure that you can all adjust to that. Midori is just a genius because she has her own clear ideas. She's very well organized, but she knows, first of all, how to inspire an amazingly positive working atmosphere. She's always calm and she's always positive. And then she can validate. She, she knows how to take in suggestions from others, not have it disturb her game plan, but to incorporate it. And she's never defensive. She's, oh, you want to try this? It's, it's remarkable. And then, of course, we have Kai, who also is listening and providing his ideas and from his experience and his knowledge. Um, Anima's always had a more democratic working environment than other. It's very normal in Anima for someone in a two-string section to say, actually, could we do liturgy? Which in some orchestral situations would just not fly. Um, but I, I, really, I really admire Midori in, in how she's handled that issue. Not playing together, using a lot of portamento, taking distance from the score. This is not what you learn in music high schools. But did the musician had the feeling to go against their musical training? Well, if you compare it to nowadays violin teaching, for instance, um, there is a certain um, school or method which is very much associated with an era and modern violin teaching today is about playing loud, so really strong with loud instrument, loud strings and um, very artistic, um, very virtuoso, so very fast and all that. So the 
beauty and uh, individuality are not so much prioritized. So I think in, in Clara Schumann's age, it was all about that. It was all about being really very personal, passionate, and, and um, yeah, this romantic spirit about uh, how to go forwards and to, to do the opposite. That was what probably teachers, when they were good, were telling their students on any instrument. From the first point of view, it's like, it's strange. Yes, it's strange, it's not me, I, I won't play like this, but listening and listening continue um, to develop your own audio experience, you will get there. From the very beginning it was like, oh no, it, it's really, everything is absolutely opposite of what was right, so to say. So all the... Um, Education, it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't exist anymore. It's, it's not true, it's not right. But um, it, it's coming with an um, audial experience. It, again, it, it comes with, uh, with listening to this recording, trying yourself um, in the orchestra, in, in the rehearsal, but also before. In my own preparation, I I just try to imitate, and it comes. It comes with the with, with the time. Um, it's a process, and now for me it feels absolutely free, absolutely natural. Um, so maybe for listeners who who not really involved in all this um, or not informed about all this um, old way of playing. Um, it might be a bit strange, but if you try not to analyze, but just enjoy the, the music as a, as a listener, I think it wouldn't be this strange anymore. I think that most of us here have come, uh, so we had our modern training, then we had period instrument training, and that already was a revolution. Suddenly, pitch was a very <laughs> variable idea. Are you in mesotonic? Are you in uh, Pythagorean? I mean, what is your pitch center? The idea of flexibility, of tempo, of overdotted rhythms, of not playing exactly what's on the page. The idea of listening. Most conductors in the period instrument movement are not perhaps the best technical conductors. They're great musicians. They, they've studied the piece. They, they understand the rhetoric. They understand the phrasing, the articulation. And so the idea of not playing with exactly what you see up there in the moment, but listening and, and take, being inspired by their singing, by their coaching, by their preparation in the rehearsals, we have years of that in our background. What's difficult is the actual tools and the actual discussion of what is beautiful is now changing. In the period in, uh, world, more than the modern world, portamento has been a taboo. Too much tempo variation is in general a, a taboo. Okay, I'm not saying it's not flexible, but there's not a lot of it. So it's more that we have to say, do we find this beautiful? Can we welcome this in this repertoire as a natural, beautiful, desired artistic expression? Difficult question, because what is beautiful? I mean, you're beautiful, it's not mine beautiful. And it, it's really very sub 
uh, subjective uh, issue. Um, that's first point for me. The second point to me is, um, should music be only about beauty? I don't think so. Um, of course, depends on which composer we are playing, but still, for me, sometimes it's about pain, it's about struggling, it's about um, uh, tension, and still, it also can be beautiful somehow, but in in its in its difficulty, maybe like this. It, it's to me, it's complicated to explain. But uh, talking about beauty in music, um, I'm very. I have my distance to 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 this word, to, to this special word, beauty in music. And uh, I'm not sure that I want that my beauty will the same beauty of what the listeners want to 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 hear. And um, yes, sometimes playing uh, and and um, realizing at that particular moment, wow, that was beautiful. <laughs> but this this the next question coming: uh, Did the composer really mean it like this? Or it's me. Sometimes I, I, I know it, it's me, I can uh, play it beautiful and I enjoy it, but it's not about this music, but it's not about composer, it's absolutely about me. It's my personal experience, but uh, what does it mean for this special music? I'm showing myself much more than composer and I do, I'm not sure it's the right way. Well, if you do measure human performances, you will always find that it's not objective, even if you think it's objective, because the measurement is just so horribly honest. Um, yeah, so this is where research into the psycholo psychology of performance tell us, tells us that we have expressive intonation. We are very willing to accept high intonation when the music gets higher and flat intonation when the music relaxes. But this is expressive intonation. This is where... Like if you say high or low, where an extra meaning helps us to understand the message. And we don't realize how much we still use expressive devices that we don't control actively. But music psychology and the tools that they have, they tell us astonishing things. And the problem is they tell artificial intelligence how to imitate a human performance. So this is why I think as a general outlook, as performers as musicians, we need to go back to our core competences as expressive communicators, because this is what AI cannot, at least not in the, um, in the near future, imitate. I don't think you can ever reproduce exactly what happened at another time. <laughs> I mean, they'd never heard Rite of Spring. I have. That's going to affect me. You know, the, the, They didn't have automobiles. They didn't know uh, artificial intelligence. There's no way an artistic statement can be exactly of the time. But what we can do is we can take from these historical ways of playing and get to a closer idea of what their aesthetic goals are what and then and what their practices were what their instruments were and really really try them listen to these recordings play with these recordings and try to figure out what were their important 
aestheticals, what was beautiful then, what was mattered, what was important, and try to take these as our goals. So it is clear from these recordings that playing absolutely together or playing with a metronome was not important. It is possible for me to say, okay, I'm not going to focus on that. And the more I do this in orchestral settings, the more I find other mini conductors. Or, ah, there it's the flutes, and here it's the double basses. Okay, I'm learning. I get it. The, the more that happens, the more I'm closer to another vision of beauty that I feel can be real today and can touch people today. Am I exactly playing the way they did? Of course not. And in fact, that's not really my goal. I mean, I don't feel that an artist on stage is giving a history lesson. What I feel is that history is so exciting. So it opens my definitions of beauty, of meaning. And that's what's so beautiful. But I really think the way we're going to convince our public <laughs> is just that it's going to be beautiful. And they're going to feel an emotion. And they're going to listen and say, wow, I never heard it like that, but that was really nice. Or... I didn't know this music. I like Joachim's music. Not many people know it. Or I, I heard Clara Schoen. Wow, okay. I'm hoping they don't say, oh gosh, I went and there was a lot of tempo change. I hope they just say, wow, I felt these changes in my soul from tension and despair to ease. And, and I felt such a range of emotions. I'm hoping they'll say that. That's how we convince them. It's not to tell them what you're hearing is what they did, so you should like it because it's authentic. That doesn't convince people. What convinced them is feeling it's beautiful. of October, short before 7 p.m. Hilary's last words are resounding in the auditorium of the Concertgebouw in Bruges. While spectators are sitting on their seats, everybody holds his breath. In a few minutes, the result of days of rehearsals, experiments and training in a new style would be played in front of an audience, without a net. Will it be sensitive to this unfamiliar and rare beauty? Join us soon in Here's Wide Open for a new episode.